0: Well, we're, we do a lot of world premieres at Woolley, and then we also do a lot of sort of second productions. In almost every play we do, we are engaging very deeply with the writer over a long period of time to help them finish the work, and then sometimes we're commissioning a play from scratch. I'm a perennially restless artistic director, and I'm always looking at the work that we do and saying, how can we go farther? How can we do better? And for Woolley, it's about continuing to push the boundaries of our audience and of our artists, and not being afraid, never underestimating our audience. We are challenged junkies, and we have an audience which we think also wants to be challenged.
1: That's artistic director Howard Schalwitz talking about the theater he leads, the Woolly Mammoth. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Now in its 31st year, the Woolly Mammoth Theater has managed to become a Washington, D.C. institution while presenting edgy and provocative work. The Woolly philosophy is that experimentation and artistic excellence must go hand in hand. And the theater brings fresh, challenging plays to D.C. that connect audiences with a particular issue in unexpected ways. For Woolly, the show continues long after the curtain comes down. It's known for its community engagement, often presenting forums and post-show talkbacks, as well as maintaining an active online presence. This focus on innovation and engagement has paid off throughout the years. Last season, for example, they presented a second production of Bruce Norris's play, Clyburn Park, which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, as well as an Olivier Award. And the Woolley production won two Helen Hayes Awards, one for Best Drama and the other for Best Director, Howard Shawlwitz. I spoke to Howard about the Woolly Mammoth Theater and Clyburn Park the week after the Helen Hayes Awards. Here's our conversation. Well, first of all, congratulations. Well, thank you, Joe. You're not just the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth. You're also one of the founding members. When you began 31 years ago, outside of New York City, it was very difficult for new playwrights to get their work out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you had the what's called the regional theater scene, including the anchors like Arena Stage here in Washington and the, these bigger companies that were doing a, an eclectic season of stuff, a lot of classics and a little bit of new work. But that rise of the kind of smaller and mid-sized theater scene was, was, as you said, later. And this explosion that we're seeing now of new work is really something relatively recent. I mean, Woolley was a sort of pioneering new play producer. New plays became the core of our mission in like uh, 1990, actually. And still, there were very few theaters doing new work regularly at that time. But now... Um, almost every theater is sort of embracing new work in some way or another as part of its overall mission. Like at Arena Stage, you have a lot of classics, but you also have some new works in the mix. Even Studio Theater, which up until the last couple of years really didn't do any kind of world premieres, I think under David Muse is talking about doing some newer work. So it's gotten to be a bigger thing in the field.
1: But that was your idea from the beginning, doing new work.
0: Yeah, our idea more than anything was challenging our audience. I think the key thing for Woolly, we, we, we always say we want to be one step ahead of our audience, but not two. So we want to talk about big themes. We increasingly want to connect with what it means to live in Washington and the kinds of themes that people in, in this city uh, are interested in. We have one of the smartest audiences in America at Woolly Mammoth, and I think in Washington in general. But I think at Woolley in particular, where the audience skews a little bit younger, it's diverse across many, many different dimensions in terms of age and background and ethnicity. And we have uh, a big international community here. So all of those things, I think, influence our desire to tee up a conversation with every show about something we think is worth talking about. We're not looking to congratulate our wonderful liberal audience for the things they already think and feel nicely. <laughs> and, but we're looking to come at them from an unusual and unexpected angle to challenge them to think even harder about, about their own lives.
1: Well, Clyburn Park certainly does that. It raises issues of race and of gentrification. Now, Woolley's had a long relationship with the playwright Bruce Norris, correct?
0: Yeah, actually, you know, Bruce has had several key relationships. Obviously, Steppenwolf, where he was sort of, uh, I guess, a resident playwright for for a while, and his his early work was done there. Playwrights Horizons and Woolley have have been among his kind of key relationships, I think. We've just done one previous play. That was The Unmentionables, uh, which I think is just a brilliant work. And I hope that the Pulitzer for Clyburn actually leads people back to rediscovering The Unmentionables, because I think it's an equally great work. Of course, we're at the point now with our relationship where we're trying to read every play of Bruce's as soon as he'll let us read it. And um, I think he sent us Clyburn pretty early on. I think we were probably the first theater to commit to doing it. And then we have a policy of not standing in the way of any other production. We're, we don't have kind of premiere-itis at Woolly. I think we do so many new plays that we're comfortable doing. The first production, the second production, we swapped back and forth with other theaters all the time. So I think shortly after we committed, like a, you know, a couple of months later, Playwrights Horizons came along and had a slot earlier in their season, and we said, fine. So they kind of were gestating at the same time in a way.
1: Can you talk about that process, that journey from page to stage?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, especially in the case of a play that turned out so well as Clyburn Park and ultimately has won all these awards and gotten so much attention, it is interesting to look back and go, hmm, what did I think when I actually read it for the first time? Because it wasn't without some controversy. The play is uh, initially a riff on A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. It's a play that obviously deals with issues of race and gentrification, and those are very pressing issues in our city. And so what I recall was that we had a robust internal conversation as to whether the play... In the form we first read it, uh, captured those issues in a way that we felt was just exactly current. And in fact, it was just shortly after the election of Obama where these issues were like transforming very, very quickly. So, you know, there was a, a process of going, okay, does this capture it? Does it not capture it? You know, where, where is it working? Where is it not working? Some conversations back and forth with Bruce because he was also expressing an interest in doing some further rewrites on the play to reflect the new environment of the post-Obama election environment. And um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a process of judging it. I knew that the writing was fantastic. I think my initial judgment of Clyburn was that the first act was some of the best writing that Bruce had ever done. There was a depth and an emotionality, an emotional specificity to the characters, and the way that it riffed on A Raisin in the Sun was so powerful.
1: You said Clyburn Park was a riff on Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun. Tell us how it departs from the original and what Bruce Norris does with that material.
0: I don't know how well you remember that play, probably quite well. But in Hansberry's play, um, you know, there's a white man who comes and presents himself to the younger family to try to convince them not to move out of the black neighborhood that they live in and not to move into this white neighborhood where they purchased a house. And in Clyburn Park in the 50s, you know, in the, set, in the setting of Raisin in the Sun, this guy, Carl Lindner, having failed to convince the youngers, now arrives at the home of the white couple, who is selling the house to them and tries to convince them not to sell the house to the youngers. And it tees up a a very heated conversation in which a group of characters, both black and white, get involved about fundamental values about neighborhoods and gentrification and race. And then we look at the same house 50 years later in the second act and see the same actors play a whole new set of characters in a sort of hilarious and very provocative confrontation about the remodeling of a house in a neighborhood that doesn't feel all that different from a lot of neighborhoods in Washington today. Um, I think that I couldn't have predicted how successfully that 50-year strategy that Bruce had in the writing would play out in the theater, and it, was, it played out, I have to say, really brilliantly.
1: Howard, you're the artistic director, but you also directed Clyburn Park. What went into your decision to choose that play?
0: Woolley's a 31-year-old theater company at this point, and we're always going through our own evolution about how we realize our very specific mission in our own particular city. I would say in the season that Clyburn Park was part of, it was our 30th anniversary season, and we had decided that we were especially keen on finding plays that gave us a chance to engage in civic discourse and to draw our audience into dialogue about our city, our time, our place, and issues that we thought were really pressing. And Clyburn Park obviously raises a major question in Washington. So that was a major draw for us. I think that stylistically, Clyburn Park is really on the realistic side for Woolly. Our raison d'etre is a theater tends to be work which is less realistic which is more stylistically um, innovative and Bruce would I think readily say that he's looking to talk to an audience stylistically in a way that they understand and have you know a frame of reference for in other plays that they've seen so that he can talk to them about issues in a fresh way and a new way, so he's not looking to invent both the style and the content with every play. I think he sells himself short because I think even as a stylistic innovator, Bruce can't be sold short. Uh, in plays like The Pain and the Itch and we all went down to Amsterdam. I think he does some very innovative things and even the idea of a play that has the same group of actors playing two sets of characters 50 years apart is its own stylistic innovation uh, which I think is quite brilliant but his major goal was to tee up these questions about race and gentrification in Chicago where the play is set, in Washington, really all over the country. He never names the city of Chicago in the play and intentionally he wanted it to be a play that was about a really a national conversation. So, you know, it happened to fit into a particular season. It was building on a relationship with a writer who I really believe in. And it was teeing up a conversation that was very, very germane to our city. So all of those things played a role in it. Plus, I loved it, and so I really fought to, to direct it. Bruce had a, a whole series of pre-existing director relationships, and I had to fight through all of that <laughs> to, to get him to agree to work with me as a director for the first time. Fortunately, he knew my work from some other productions of mine he'd seen, and, and so that, that helped.
1: Did you work very closely with him?
0: Yeah, very closely. On these first two productions, and I think probably on the succeeding two or three, Bruce was very, very involved, and he's a great collaborator. He's an actor, so he, he feels how the acting goes in the play as a writer. I think he has a visualization of the world of the play and so I was certainly keen to hear his thoughts about all of those and at the same time you know it's a tricky process of sort of carving out my own territory as a director and there were places where we disagreed and butted heads and I think that's healthy. I think he pushed me and I think that I pushed him and ultimately we both came to a place that we I can't speak for him, but I think that we thought was absolutely, you know, a great, great represent, representation of the play. On the actor front, Bruce was so helpful, and he really insisted, as I would insist as well, but he was helpful in this, on a scrupulous honesty to the approach and to never over-emotionalize anything beyond what's absolutely called for by the world of the play. I think that what we succeeded at at Woolley is a very, very true, very emotionally rich and full world, but never histrionic, never emotional beyond just exactly what's there in the play and making sure that the characters were always representing themselves from their own particular point of view because the play thrives on uh, representing multiple points of view about these issues of race and gentrification and you have to believe in every one of them for the audience to have the rich experience of that
1: give and take. How do you work, Howard? Do you put actors on their feet? Very quickly, do you have them rehearse for a long period of time? Do you give them resources that you'd like them to draw on?
0: Yeah, all of the above. I actually, in the case of Clyburn Park, made a strategic decision which was different from what I usually do. I almost dispense with table work completely, which is very rare table work, meaning sitting around you know, with the actors, usually for three or four days and uh, researching, going through the script, uh, you know, learning what the key actions and objectives are, sort of talking about the basic backstory and then getting on our feet. I decided in this case I had four company members who are super veteran woolly actors who I'd worked with many times before and then some other fantastic newcomers but whose work I knew fairly well. And I felt like with the normal four-week rehearsal period, which is basically what we have at Woolley and which, which is about as much as most American theaters have, that it was better to get on our feet and physicalize it. And I think that I did made that choice because I felt that the house was a major character in the play. And it was, it was one of my goals in the production and in the design. We really made the house feel like a character in the play and that to do too much conversation without having that engagement with the physical environment didn't, didn't mean that much. So that was a change for the way I usually work and it paid off a lot. It, it allowed everybody to feel they got further faster. And what happened was we just took the time as we needed to do the kind of table work analysis and backstory analysis and, you know, emotional discussions and everything. So, you know, those are just choices you make with every show. There was a lot of research, obviously, that I had to do into the world of the 1950s part of the play in particular having to do with, obviously, researching Raisin in the Sun and, you know, the the background of that play, but also the way in which these issues of race played out in neighborhoods in the 50s, the role that attorneys played, the role that neighborhood associations played. So there was a lot I had to learn. And then that you're encouraging the actors to learn as well. And um, Bruce was a great resource there because he had researched the play very thoroughly when he wrote it and so he could kind of jumpstart some of that
1: conversation. And a kind of Woolly component to it is that each production is surrounded by what you call connectivity events. Explain that.
0: Yeah, connectivity is a new focus. It's a sort of innovation area here at Woolly over the last couple of years. I think in America, we tend to think of theater as being a form of entertainment that's sort of off in the corner of the culture for just a certain segment of the population. And our goal, situated where we are in the downtown of the nation's capital, has been to say, how do we break through that perception? And how do we start to think about a play as part of a larger dialogue that's happening throughout you know, Washington every day? So what we are doing with every play is sort of saying, what's the conversation the playwright wants to have? Who would need to be in the audience to make that conversation a meaningful conversation? In other words, if the play is about racial issues, you can't have an audience that's all white or all black or, or all Latino. You need to, to mix those people up. Uh, if the play is about economic justice, you can't have an audience of all rich people. You, you, the dialogue doesn't have any meaning if it doesn't have people from many classes represented. So being intentional about how we design an audience for a show and then create points of entry for different audiences, some of whom may have never been to the theater before, and then engage all sorts of audiences, our traditional subscription going audience, new audiences that we bring in around a particular topic or a particular show, to design a set of activities in our lobby, in our Playbill, online, in our, on our website, which is, we have one of the most active theater blogs in America and through special events like forums and post-show conversations with invited guests, so that the issues that are embedded in the plays really become part of the city's dialogue. It's like we sort of think, oh theater is this ivory tower thing that only certain theater-educated people understand, but in fact theater is about real life, and when you work hard to say what's the real life in this play, and who are the people who share that life, or whose work gives them a special interest in that life, and let them talk about the work and share their reflections with the regular theater-going audience, you get a very, very powerful and exciting engagement for our artists, for our audiences, and for the community at large.
1: Now, do you think part of the reason there was this or has been this disconnect between real life and theater in the ivory tower has something to do with ticket prices?
0: I think ticket prices are a huge factor, and I think they're really uh, crippling the field in a lot of ways. And yet the economics of theater are so marginal that there's always pressure to raise your ticket prices. So every theater has its own way of trying to address that. At Woolley, I think, you know, we were one of the national pioneers of what's called Pay What You Can Nights, And you probably know we still do those. Our first two previews of every show are Pay What You Can. We don't sell any tickets in advance. People come and line up around the block. They almost always sell out. People pay an average of, I don't want to say the average, but it's not very high. (laughs) Because we want to encourage some people to pay more and some people pay less, but you can pay a penny or you can pay $20, You know, whatever suits you. And that really has helped us, I think, by committing to that so consistently over so many years to continue to maintain a very young audience and, and an audience which is economically diverse. We have a million other programs that address that as well. Any student can get a ticket for $20 at Woolly Mammoth. Anyone under 30 can get a ticket at Woolly any night for, for $20. And then we do all sorts of other special promotions so that price isn't a barrier. But that's a, that's a message we have to keep working to get out there because I think you're absolutely right. The general perception, when people see the regular ticket prices, which at Woolly are somewhere between 40 and 60 they go, oh, well, that's not for me. But in fact, there's almost always a way, at least at Woolley, to get uh, an inexpensive ticket if you call and ask. And I think that's true of a lot of theaters as well. People just need to investigate a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to be patting yourself on the back because Clyburn Park is coming <laughs> Clyburn's back. Clyburn's coming back, yeah. To, which is exciting. To the Woolly Mammoth. And that was arranged before the Pulitzer, before the Yeah, Hollenays I mean, Awards. really,
0: even before we finished the run at Woolly, uh, which was this enormous kind of success, it wasn't, and it wasn't even so much that we wanted to bring it back to make money. We'll lose money on the remount just as much as we lost doing it originally. You know, we lose money in every show we do. And in fact, we ended up replacing a sort of fringe uh, opportunity where we usually do something something inexpensive with something that's quite expensive. Clyburn is very technically expensive, as as well as having a good-sized cast. But it's that the conversation around the show about race and gentrification in our city was so rich, because we surrounded the show with a lot of post-show activity, invited guests commenting on the play, uh, forums dealing with uh, issues uh, about race in our city reaching out to neighborhood bloggers and engaging them in online conversation about the play. We really made a big feature of that in the play and in fact it became a model for a lot of our a lot of a lot of our later productions. And we felt that was such a rich thing that that's what we were really wanting to come back to. At that point we couldn't anticipate that it would win the Olivier Award, the the Pulitzer Prize, these two Helen Hayes Awards and who knows what other awards it might have, you know, already won in some other cities where it's been done.
1: And finally, Wooly Mammoth, where did the name come from?
0: <laughs> well, we were drunk, that's the only real explanation. You know, it was founded by myself and, and Roger Brady. It was an idea we cooked up in New York in the late 70s when we were both actors there. And... We really, really drank an entire bottle of really bad red wine and uh, and just made a list of all the names we could think of. That list is still in our archives and sure enough, Woolly Mammoth is on it. Uh, you know, it was the same period when Steppenwolf was named. I think there was a tendency at the time to do slightly kooky theater names to sort of identify your own unique niche and uh, Woolly Mammoth just stuck.
1: What's cool about it is I love the idea of a woolly production.
0: Well, now it's become an adjective, the idea of woolly. To me, there's an irony in it, too, because, of course, the woolly mammoth is a very, very old animal that's now extinct that goes back, to, I don't know, 11 or 12,000 years. Not, not the dinosaur age, but... A, the ice age. So there's an irony in that a company which is really trying to position itself on the leading edge and do almost all new work and often very stylistically inventive new work, very provocative new work in terms of the kinds of conversations we're trying to have that the name is is both I think backward looking and forward looking. So I think I've always found that a little bit ironic but somehow it works.
1: <laughs> Howard, thank you so much Thanks. and congratulations again. <laughs> Thanks so much. That was Howard Shawwitz, artistic director of the Woolly Mammoth Theater. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from For Eric, Piano Study. From the album Metascapes, composed and performed by Todd Barton, used courtesy of Valley Productions. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Sean Malentz discusses his biography of Bob Dylan. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.